Well, good morning, Hope. It's good to be with you this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be dealing with verses 1 to 11. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Well, I hope you know of the love that our elders, our staff, the ministry directors, the flock leaders, and the small group leaders have for you. The love that they have for you is in Christ. I'm so blessed to be able to serve here on staff, and I can truly say to you that the elders, the staff, the directors here, the flock leaders, and the small group leaders love you. And we're so thankful for you. We have seen the Lord do great work in our church. Praise God. I've been privileged to be here for just over four years, and I've seen the Lord do great work in people's lives. And I know the Lord was at work long before I ever got here. The Lord is good to us. Amen? The Lord is kind to us. Amen? And in your own life, you would know, of course, better than anybody else, the love that you personally have received from Jesus Christ. The love that has saved you and called you. The love that has sealed you in His Spirit. The love that now has you and is transforming you to be more like His Son. You would know this better than anyone. You've felt in your own life the encouragement in Christ and you've been comforted through His love. You would know that better than anyone, of course, because you have seen the work that he has done in your own heart. And Paul, later on in this book, asks us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And all of us need to be doing this. Work it out. We've seen what Christ has done, and so are we confident that we are saved? I pray that you are, but all of us right now, we should be asking ourselves, am I in Christ? Am I truly in Christ? Have I felt this encouragement? Have I felt his love? Have I seen the transformation in my own life? And if you are in Christ, then you must also desire to be an imitator of Christ. We must, if we are in Christ, all agree that the best thing that we can do for our own personal joy, for the health of our church, and for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be more like our Savior. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Let's read our text today, Philippians 2, 1 to 11. It says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you sent your Son who was willing to come, to take on flesh and then to die for humanity. Lord, thank you that we have a perfect example of humility. Lord, thank you, O God, that you counted us to be significant. Lord, thank you that you looked at us, a rebellious people, and saved us. Lord, thank you that you've restored our relationship with the Father. Lord, we need you now. Holy Spirit, would you teach us your word? Fill us with your grace. Fill us, O Lord, with your wisdom. We need you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul is writing this to the church in Philippi, to the Philippians. And the church in Philippi would have been a little bit of a wealthy, a well-off church. Uh, The town of Philippi was mostly retired uh, soldiers from the Roman Empire, and they would have been living off of pretty good pensions. And so Philippi was a well-taken-care-of area and would have been a little bit more affluent. The church in Philippi um, was very supportive of Paul's missionary journeys. They supported him financially throughout his entire missionary career. In fact, Paul is writing this letter from prison after receiving a gift from the Philippian church through Epaphroditus. And so he's writing them back to say thank you, but also to encourage them in the Lord. He knew that they were saved. He knew that they had good theology. The church in Philippi would have had a good theology. and In fact, throughout the book, he's imploring them based on the truth that he knows they have. They were very generous, as we saw, with their money. They lived it out, their good theology, in, in that way, by being generous and supporting missionaries. But the issue in Philippi was not with their theology. It wasn't with their generosity. It was with their unity. It was in their relationships. They knew Christ, but when it came to their relationships with one another, they were not acting like Christ. The truth is, is our church has a lot of similarities to Philippi. We're in a more affluent area. We're very generous with our gifts. We help many missionaries in church planting, praise be to God. And we have pretty good theology, I think, around here. But all of us at different times have allowed ourselves to get in the way of what our relationships should look like towards one another. Whether it was selfishness, foolishness, laziness, or a lack of forgiveness, all of these things have gotten in the way, and all of these things need to be put aside to seek unity with one another. Maybe this is our issue today, and this is our big point today, is that if we are in Christ, we will also be like Christ. 
And what that means is that we're all going to get along. If you are in Christ, you will be like Christ, and we will have unity. And so church, let's get along. Let's be friends. Let's be family. So here's our points for today. Number one is this. If we are in Christ, we will be like Christ and have the same mind. What I've done here is, in our text today, Paul, in the first four verses of chapter 2, really explains what we should do, and then from 5 to 11 explains what Christ has done as our example. He shows that Christ is the perfect example of what we are to do and how we are to act towards one another. And so, in each of our points, we have a couple verses from the first part and then a verse or two from the second part. So, let's read this again together, verse 1 and 2, and then verse 5. Verse 1 says this, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And verse 5 says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. These verses come off the heels of chapter 1 where Paul explains the joy that he has even though he's being persecuted, even though he's in prison while writing this letter, the joy he has because of the incredible work that Christ is doing through his gospel. That even the the jailers are talking about it. Everyone in the Roman guard knows about why Paul is being imprisoned for the sake of Christ. And he says, yes, in this I will rejoice. Regardless of my circumstance, regardless of my imprisonment, I will rejoice. And he's encouraging the church because of this. And then in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And immediately from there, he goes on to say, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We must stride side by side for the faith of the gospel. As believers, this is part of our mission. This is part of our very purpose to live out the gospel. And this means to be unified, to be of one mind. Look at the text in verse 1 here, chapter 2. It says, if there's any encouragement, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul here is imploring them on behalf of their faith. Because of the faith they have in Christ, he's calling them to remember it. In our English translation, it says, so if there is any, and and we could read that and think, oh, he's asking a question, like he's just saying, hey, is there anybody there that loves Christ? Anyone there that's been encouraged? But really, that's not what he's doing here. Really, it could be translated, and maybe in a more literal sense, to say, since there is encouragement in Christ, since you have this comfort and love, I've seen it in your life. I've seen by the gifts you've given me and the encouragement you've been to me. I've seen Christ through you. I've seen it. And Paul, instead of coming at them with commandments, he's coming at them to implore them to convince them, to reason with them, to say, hey, remember the faith you have? He's asking the reader to call to mind the encouragement they've received in Christ. And you would know that better than anyone. The encouragement that you've received in Christ, the comfort that you've received from His love, the participation that you've had with the Spirit 
as you've prayed and He's led you and He's given you wisdom and understanding, as He showed you truth from His Word, as He's transformed your heart over the course of your Christian life. The affection and sympathy that you have now received from Christ and now that you are able to show to others because Christ has transformed your heart. He's saying, remember these things. He's, remember these things. That Christ is in you and He's encouraged you and loved you and changed you and the Spirit is in you. Remember these things. When you read this passage, can you call these things to mind? Can your affections be stirred to remember that you are in Christ? And Paul is doing this all for the purpose of redirecting how we look at our relationships. He's saying that we need to look at our relationships with other people from a different perspective than what our flesh would have us do. Before we talk about the problems within our relationship, before we go through the the difficulties that we have in a relationship, we need to first deal with who our God is and what He has done for us. We don't look at it from the perspective of how a person has treated me. We don't look at it from how a person has hurt me or mistreated me, but we take a step back and we have an eternal perspective on our relationships with other people. See, relationships never start with the other person. Never. They start with who our Savior is. We do not love people because of what we get out of the relationships. This is not what Christ has ever called us to. We love people because of what we already have gotten out of our relationship with Christ. And we have received so much, haven't we, church? Who does the Bible say we are required to love? We are called to love our families. Sometimes that's easier than other times. We're called to love our spouse. We're called to love our children. We're called to love our extended family as well. We're even called to love our neighbor, even if they shovel their snow from their driveway onto your driveway. (laughs) Jesus also says we're to love our enemies. Love our enemies. Why? Is it because of what they have done for you? Never. It is simply because we are to be like our Father in heaven. This is the basis of how we treat one another, on how God has treated us. Look at verse 2. It says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. See, we must love the same thing. In fact, Christian, we do love the same thing. We do love the same thing. If you, as a believer in Christ, as a believer in Christ, you love Christ. And if you love Christ, you love the things that Christ loves. And me, as a believer in Christ, I love Christ. And I love the things that Christ loves. That's what being saved is. We have a heart that is transformed, and now instead of loving sin, we love righteousness because of Christ. Instead of loving this world, we love the gifts that come from God. And since we have the same love, since we both love the same thing, we're looking at the same goal, the same end, we have the same mission, we must have the same mind. 
We simply cannot allow our preferences or our particularities or our personality get in the way of what we have in Christ. Our end is the same because of Christ. We have the same mission because of Christ. And when we really take a step back from the problems that we might have with one another, the difficulties, the hurt, the pain, when we take a step back and we look at our lives and what Christ has done for us, we put it on a spectrum of eternity And we look at these problems that will only be here for 80 years. They are nothing. And when we look at what Christ has done for us, how can we not treat others in the same manner? There is a peace that covers any hurt. There is a joy that overcomes any relational heartache. Why? Because we have the same love and we can be of one mind. As a church, we need this unity. It's not really a maybe if we get to it sort of thing. We need it. We need it for so many things. We need this kind of one-mindedness in love to be fruitful and effective for the gospel. Here are three things why we need unity in our church. We need it to worship. Do you know that? We need unity with one another to worship. In Matthew 5, 23 and 24, it says that we can't even bring our gifts of offering to the Lord if we have strife with our brothers. He says, no, stop, don't, go and fix the issue, and then come back and worship the Lord in your gifts. Are you allowing an argument or a disagreement, regardless of how serious you think it may be, An argument that can only possibly last the span of this life, get in the way of your eternal purpose of worshiping the eternal God. How foolish that would be. Do you count your disagreements as more important than your worship? Please don't. You will be worshiping together in heaven for eternity. We might as well all get along right now. Secondly, we need unity for forgiveness. Matthew 6, 15 and 16 says this, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. Notice in Matthew 6 that there isn't an asterisk next to that verse with a qualifier that says, but if you don't forgive others, their trespasses, asterisks, unless it's really bad, unless it hurt a lot, unless you just can't seem to get over it. No. If you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. If we are not walking in unity and able to put aside differences and be able to put things into perspective for what they are and forgive one another and walk in this oneness of mind regardless of what the offense is, we also cannot be forgiven. We need this unity, church. It is so important. And thirdly, so much this affects our mission of what we're called to do. We need unity to see other people saved. We need unity to see other people saved. John 17, 20 and 21, Jesus praying his high priestly prayer to the Father. He says this, 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity with each other and our unity in Christ while we proclaim the gospel will be what enables others to believe in Jesus. What are we allowing to get in the way of what we have been called and created to do? To worship, to be forgiven, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you, when you put disagreements and strife next to the glories that Jesus Christ and the mission that He has put us on, they just seem so silly. We must be of one mind, church. This is incredibly important. If there is issues with other people, we need to deal with them. And the way we do that is first by reminding ourselves what we have in Christ and then applying that love to others as well. Our next two points really are applications of how we get this done. And, and the first point is this, or this, our second point is this. If we are in Christ, we will be like Christ and seek humility. We will seek humility. And our two verses are 3 and 8, 8 being the corresponding example of Christ. In verse 3 it says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And verse 8, as Christ's example, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, we must seek humility. See, Paul here puts two things against one another, right? On one hand are the actions that are from selfish ambition and conceit, and on the other hand are actions that count others as more significant than yourselves, and the difference between those two is humility. In verse 8, of course, he gives us the example of how Christ did this. Did this. See, our sickness and in our flesh, our depravity would have us seek selfish ambition and conceit. And the medication for this problem we have is humility. Humility is not just thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. The phrase here, count others more significant than yourselves, I think it's important. This is really how we do this humility. It says, but in humility, how do we do this in humility? We count others more significant than ourselves. It does not mean you pretend that you're worth nothing. That's not what he's calling us to at all. It doesn't mean you just pretend that you're nothing or that you're less than people. That's, that's not what he's asking for. A few commentators had some good examples. I really liked this one. Um, They're saying... In, in, a, in, a, in a practical sense, he's saying if, if a six-foot-tall man, okay, a tall man, came up to a shorter man, it wouldn't be counting others more significant by saying, if the tall man said to the short man, you're taller than me. No, it's just lying, right? That's not true. It's just, it's unhelpful. It actually doesn't accomplish anything. It's actually just drawing more attention to the self that you, the point that you are taller than that person, Right? That's not what humility is. That's a false humility. It's, 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 it's unhelpful. Selfish ambition and conceit 
is counting ourselves as more significant, where humility just counts others as more significant. So, how do we do this? I think practically, in one sense or one mindset way to get your mind wrapped around this idea is, if we're all equal under God, which we are, and there's ten of us sitting in a room or standing in a room where there's nine chairs, you're seeking that everyone else would sit down before you. When you're at the mall on the Boxing Day week sales, you're not rushing to get in front of everyone in the lines or in the parking spots. You're counting other people as more significant, even if they're not. And at the mall, they're not, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter if they are or they aren't. It's how we count them. We count them as more significant, even if they really aren't. We count them as more significant, and we, we see them as more significant than us. It's, it's this looking at ourselves and knowing our faults and being honest with ourselves with our faults and analyzing those faults and asking God to help us with our faults, but when we look at other people, not looking at their faults, allowing love to cover the multitude of faults and sins in their life and seeing the good in them and seeing their strengths and focusing on that and counting them as more significant than self. And this is what Christ did. He is our perfect example. I love how Paul goes straight to Christ. He really lays it out perfectly. Because was there ever a moment, ever, where Christ was less significant than any of us in reality? Was there ever a moment where Christ was less important? Was there ever a moment where Christ deserved to be less than us? Not once not even for a millisecond. Yet, he was found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He counted us as more significant than himself. He who was in perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit in all eternity. He who deserves all the glory and praise. He who created all things and all things were created for Him. Him, this Jesus, He humbled Himself and became less than us. He, he counted us as more significant than Him so that we might have relationship with the Father. In a fair world, Jesus never dies. But He lowered Himself. He humbled Himself. He took the punishment that we deserve. He reconciled the relationship. We sinned against Him, yet He loved us. And so then, how can we not love our brothers and sisters in Christ? How can we not extend this similar grace? How can we allow anything to get in the way of being like our Savior and counting others more significant? This is what will bring you joy. But this can be very difficult sometimes, can it? It's easy to say. It's easy to say, but when rubber hits the road, it can be very difficult because life happens and sometimes we're dealing with people that just hate you. Have you had this? Someone just hates you? You don't really know why? And in that moment, do you just turn the other cheek and count them as even more significant you when they're hating you? Just as we hated Christ and sinned against God and rebelled against His kingdom, yet He chose 
to love us anyway? Or do we allow this hatred as an excuse to not follow the teachings of Christ just this once? This situation is different. Or dealing with someone who has just hurt you profoundly. We've all been hurt. We've all been hurt. Do you put away your own selfish ambition, your own pride, your own, your own glory, your, your own rights, what you think you deserve? Put all of that aside, just as Christ did for us, counting them more significant even though they've hurt you? Or do you focus on the hurt and you think you deserve better and you're going to get it? Focusing on revenge and payback instead of one-mindedness and the ultimate goal we have in Christ. But we can even do this to people who love us. They love us and they are counting us as more significant than them and we go, yeah, you're right, you're right. And we take advantage of that love, but no, even the people who love us, we are to count them as more significant than us and we are to outdo them in doing good and love them. If we are in Christ, we will be like Christ. We will look at the humility that He had and we will count others as more significant than ourselves. We clearly didn't deserve any of it and maybe the person that you're in strife with doesn't deserve any of it, but that doesn't matter. It's what we have received and it's what we give. If someone hates you, then fine. Let it be an opportunity for you to showcase the love that, of Christ that you've received. If someone has hurt you, fine. But let it be an opportunity to trust in the healing power of Christ's redemptive work. And even in this situation, count them as more significant than yourself. And allow yourself to be blessed by being more like your Savior. Not for their sake, but for the sake of our God and Him being glorified. If we are in Christ, we will be like Christ, and our third point is this, we will seek servanthood. We will seek servanthood, and really this is the practical application of humility. Humility being a mindset of how we look at people, and servanthood being what we do with our hands. Look at verse 4, and then 6 and 7 as Christ's example. It says this in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And verse 6 says, speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this is the practical definition of humility, servanthood, servanthood. This is what humility looks like when it's lived out. And I would argue that true humility must be lived out in servanthood. Because we always have to be doing something, and either it'll be coming from the motive of pride or humility, our actions. It will be a self-serving action or a servant-hearted action. So the way we do this is by not looking at our own interests, but looking at the interests of others. I like that word, look, in verse 4. Kind of the action word, the thing we are to do. Let each of you look. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. We can so often look at our own interests, right? As I was preparing this and thinking through, how do I preach this in any sort of way that doesn't 
try to come off as, I figured this out. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but the interests of others. Like, taking stock of my own life, I just think of myself all the time. How convicting is reading this passage. Don't just think of your own interests. Oh, man. What am I going to do today? What am I going to do tomorrow? How am I going to get further ahead? How am I going to figure that thing out? What am I going to do so I can get away? What am I going to do so I can have a break? What am I going to do? Me, 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 me. It's like... But instead of looking to self, Paul implores us, look to others. Look. And I, and I take that to mean, where are you finding your joy? What do you find your joy in? Do you find your joy in looking after your own interests? Don't do that. But instead, find your joy in other people's interests. Again, let's look at Christ's example, the creator of the world, the one who was with the Father and the Spirit in eternity, Jesus who is God. He didn't even count his own equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does he mean by that? He means he knows he was God, obviously, but he just, I don't, I'm not concerned about that. I'm not concerned that I deserve all the glory, praise, and worship for eternity. End of story. I'm not concerned by the fact that I am equal to the Father that I created the world and that it's all for me. I'm not concerned about that. I'm going to empty myself and become a servant. I'm looking at the interests of others and putting them before my own interests. And this is where we will find joy. If Jesus Christ counted himself less, if he counted us as more significant, if he looked to our interests and not his own, how can we also not look to the interests of others? He saw the need and fulfilled it, laying down all of his rights, laying down everything he deserved, and he came to serve us who were enemies of God. And so we should serve one another. We should outdo one another. Our primary goal should be seeking out and looking for the interests of others. So how do we do this? I have five quick ways that I jotted down. How do we practically do this? How do we serve one another? What's a great way to start serving? Here's, here's number one. Use your gifts. Use your gifts that God has given you. Each of you have a gift. You have a gift, ability, a talent, God has given it to you. He has made you in such a way that if you are being who God has created you and using your gift to serve others, you're actually fulfilling your purpose in glorifying God. That's what it says in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Use your gifts to serve one another. Don't use your gifts just for your own interests. Use your gifts for other people's interests. Serve other people. How about this one? Fulfill a need. Fulfill a need. You know, you can't fulfill a need until you find the need. Seek out other people's needs and then fulfill the need. Maybe in your small group. Maybe it's, maybe it's bringing people meals that need meals. Maybe it's taking care of someone's kids so that they can take care of their parents. Maybe it's a whole host of things that you could do to fulfill a need for somebody else. 
but seeking to serve in humility, counting their time as more significant than your time, counting their life as more significant than yours, not seeking your own interests and comfort, but seeking their interests. How about this one? This is my favorite. Pray for each other. Pray for each other. This really is, it's got to be like 99% of the things that are effective for us to do. Praying for each other. Maybe it's with the person face-to-face, and maybe it's privately praying for others. How often can our prayers just become all about our interests? How ironic. When really our prayers should be about other people's interests. Of course, we are to bring our requests before the Lord, of course. But can't we as a church commit to praying for each other and praying for the interests of other people, not just our own? I'd ask, can you commit to that this week and try that out? Can you make a list of people that you need to pray for and jot down what the Lord has put on your heart to pray for them and pray for their interests? What a blessing that is in our church. How about this? Seek out a hurting person. You know there's hurting people here today. Seek them out. Seek out the hurting person. Love them. You say, I don't know where the hurting person is. Pray that God would show you the hurting person. You think the Holy Spirit honors that prayer? Lord, I just want to help someone. I just want to pray for someone. I just want to seek out someone who's hurting that I could be an encourage to them. I don't think the Holy Spirit's going, no, not today. It's like, yes, unity with the body, a willing spirit who is willing to put their own interests aside and find the interests of someone else and serve them and love them. Yes, yes, yes. How about this? Be welcoming to everyone, not just the people you already know. If we all have the same mission, if we all love the same God, if we've all been saved by the same blood, then how can we not be welcoming to everyone? It's amazing how this section of Scripture ends. and Our fourth point is this. If we are in Christ, we will be like Christ and be exalted by God. Wow. We don't deserve this. And as you've seen in in our first three points, we had a verse from the first part and verse from the second part, what we should do and then the example of Christ. But here we only have the example of Christ. We don't really have our part. It's because it hasn't happened yet. But for Christ, it has. Look at verse 9, 10, and 11. It says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul gives us this plea of how to live and also gives us the example of Christ, each thing we are to do. And then here, the exaltation of Christ has happened because he has done the work. He has done it. He has perfectly humbled himself. He has perfectly become a servant. He has completed his mission. It is finished. But one day, faithful servant of Christ, if you will humble yourself, if you will be a servant, if you will seek unity in like manner, not to the same extent, but we will be exalted in Christ. Praise God. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what exaltation are you seeking? 
Are you seeking a momentary exaltation of self, lifting oneself's needs and privileges and rights over others for now, and enjoy this very temporary exaltation of yourself, or are you seeking an eternal exaltation in Christ? That if we would humble ourselves now and serve one another and put others' interests before our own and, and see others as more significant than ourselves and be like our Savior, that we will be exalted with God forever. What exaltation do you seek? In James 4, 6, it says that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. What a wonderful warning in Scripture to put away our pride and to put away our own interests and to seek the interests of others. That God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so we should seek this humility and receive the exaltation from God. And all of this is wonderful, but let's just, before we close, look back at what makes all of this possible. One more time. Look at who Jesus is. He is above every name. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The angels, those living, and even those dead. And every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and God will get all the glory. This is who your God is. This is who our Savior is. He is the one who in eternity was in perfection and deserved everything, yet decided to count us as significant. He is the one who laid down all of His majesty so that you could be reconciled with the Father. He is the one who, instead of enjoying eternity in perfection, decided to come down and temporarily take on flesh and then be killed so that we might have life. This is who our God is. This is the one we serve. And how can we, who have been encouraged in Christ and been comforted by His love, and now participate with the Spirit of God, how can we not seek to be imitators of the God who saved us? Church, we must get along. We must have unity if we are going to be fruitful and effective for His gospel. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace. Lord, You are good to us. You are kind to us. You are merciful. You are compassionate, Lord. Lord, we thank You, God, that You sent Your Son and He willingly came, not considering Himself, but considering us. What a perfect example of humility as He became a servant and came in the lowliest of ways and then lived a life that only went downwards toward the cross. Lord, would we be just like our Savior, who has received all the glory, but Lord, would we be just like our Savior who humbled Himself, God? Lord, would we put our disagreements and our strife aside? Lord, would we seek forgiveness? Lord, would we see the forgiveness we have received and then extend it to others, Lord, and move forward with one mind because we have one love and because we're on the same mission? Lord, we thank you for your grace. Be with us now as we respond to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.